When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Erica Hill. Poppy is off today, and we have major news breaking overnight on this Thursday, November 30th. Israel and Hamas clinching a last-minute deal to extend that pause in fighting for one more day. Same terms, living hostages in exchange for a day without military action. But new this morning, at least three people are dead. Six others are wounded in Jerusalem after police say Palestinian gunmen opened fire at a bus stop. And Henry Kissinger is dead at the age of 100. The polarizing former Secretary of State reshaped American diplomacy and the world during the Cold War and beyond. And in two hours, scandal-plagued Congressman George Santos is set to speak from the steps of the Capitol ahead of tomorrow's planned expulsion vote. But he isn't packing his bags just yet. The House Speaker says he has, quote, real reservations about showing Santos the door. CNN This Morning starts right now. You can see it there in that video, the big smile, the wave from 73-year-old Irina Tati, one of the 16 hostages just released by Hamas. 102 hostages have been released or recovered so far. Israel believes there are 145 people taken, taken on October 7th still in Gaza. And today, we're expecting 10 more women and children to be freed. The fragile pause stands for now. The big question, how long will this last? What happens at midnight? This one-day deal came down to the wire extended just minutes before the pause was set to expire. Israel, for its part, is insisting that the terms for this and any future deal must remain the same. Ten living hostages in exchange for another day of the pause. Here's a senior advisor to the Israeli prime minister just moments after that extension was announced. If Hamas releases ten Israelis, that means the pause can continue. We won't play games here. We're not going to play games with the lives of our people. Hamas knows what the parameters of the deal are. So earlier, Hamas says it had offered a different deal. Seven women and children, hostages, and the bodies of three more hostages. Israel, though, did reject that deal. It also raises some serious questions this morning about how much longer this pause can actually be extended. We start this morning with CNN Chief Global Affairs Correspondent Matthew Chance. He is live in Tel Aviv. Matthew, 18 more hours for the pause as it stands now. What happens next here? Well, hopefully uh, there will be a further negotiation, I'm sure they're underway right now, uh, to agree another pause and another re release of, of Israeli hostages. As you just saw there, Mark Regev, the spokesperson uh, for the Israeli government, uh, saying there needs to be 10 living Israeli hostages released in exchange uh, for a single day's pause and the release of Palestinian prisoners and the influx of uh, aid relief into the Gaza Strip as well. That's continuing now for a seventh consecutive day. Israel says it's received a list of hostages from Hamas via the mediators uh, in Qatar and, and elsewhere. And so the preparations are underway uh, for an exchange along the lines that we've seen for the past six, six days. But the fact that Hamas says Israel rejected that offer of seven hostages plus three bodies 
um, you know, gives us you know, pause for thought and it sort of implies, doesn't it, uh, that uh, Hamas uh, may be finding it difficult uh, to gather women and children who are alive uh, to, um, to exchange for prisoners and to pass over back uh, to Israel. It doesn't mean, of course, all of them are dead. Uh, we know for a fact, uh, according to Israeli um, officials, uh, that uh, some of the hostages that are, that are kept in Gaza are not with Hamas, they're with other Palestinian groups, with criminal gangs as well, or with families. And so it's um, a logistical uh, you know, obstacle uh, for Hamas to try and gather these people across the Gaza Strip and bring them to a point where they can be handed over. So that's, that's an issue. But nevertheless, you know, we're, we're looking at how fragile as well this, this, uh, this ceasefire or this temporary truce continues to be. They've agreed this one extension, but every day now, the Israeli cabinet will be looking at whether they want to extend, whether there's enough reason to extend the pause uh, for, an, for another day. But at any moment, according to Israeli officials, uh, hostilities or the combat, the warfare uh, in the Gaza Strip uh, may uh, start up once again. Yeah, it is also tenuous, so delicate. Matthew, I also wanted to ask you, breaking overnight, uh, we've learned at least three people were killed, six injured after police say Palestinian gunmen opened fire on a bus stop in the eastern part of Jerusalem near the West Bank. Um, I know we have some video, I think, too. You can see someone here being taken away on a stretcher. This happened just hours after the IDF killed four people, including two children, in the occupied West Bank city of Janine. Um, we do have more of that video I know we're going to show. Um, can you tell us more about what happened in these incidents, Matthew? Yeah, well, this is all part of the real upsurge in violence that's been taking place um, elsewhere in, in, in the region, in the West Bank, um, uh, in, in East Jerusalem as well, uh, where we've seen um, clashes between Israeli forces, Palestinians, um, in various locations. This latest iteration taking place in Jerusalem, where two Palestinian gunmen uh, opened fire at what seems to be a bus stop, uh, killing at least three Israelis, injuring six others, uh, passers-by, um, some of them sort of off-duty uh, military uh, personnel, uh, opened fire on the Palestinian gunmen, killed, killed two of them uh, as they were trying to get back into their car and run away. Very compelling uh, closed-circuit television uh, footage of that incident uh, taking place. But it just underlines uh, the tensions that are now sort of, you know, have been simmering for a long time and are now boiling over uh, as a result of the, uh, the ongoing Israeli campaign uh, in, in the Gaza Strip and, and of course, the, the, the military operations that are continuing elsewhere as well. Matthew Chance, appreciate it. Thank you. Phil? Well, right now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel, meeting behind closed doors with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and others about getting hostages out and about what comes next. The meetings come as the White House and Israel are working to figure out how to protect civilians in Gaza, particularly southern Gaza, once the pause ends. We're going to show you what Khan Yunus looks like right now from the back of a donkey cart. The landscape is shattered. And remember, Khan Yunus is in the south. That's where the IDF told people to flee earlier in the war. But now... U.S. is pressing Israel to move those civilians out of the way if they're going to restart military operations in the South and to make those strikes more targeted and more precise. CNN's MJ Lee joins us from the White House. MJ, you have great behind-the-scenes reporting here, but just to show people what we're talking about before I get to you, right? this is a satellite analysis of damage in Gaza from October 5th through November 22nd, and you will see up here in the north where operations from the IDF have been centered the scale of the damage of the strikes over the course of both the air campaign, the artillery campaign, but also the ground campaign have been significant. That was why the IDF told Gazan uh, people living in Gaza 
to head towards the south, past this dividing line, into the area near Khan Yunus. If you look down there, there are significantly fewer strikes, less damage, despite the fact that there have been strikes. So, MJ, I guess the question right now is, given these behind-the-scenes conversations that have been ongoing, do administration officials believe they have the leverage uh, with Israeli officials that they will listen? I mean, we'll ultimately end up seeing whether that ends up being the case. But what we do know is that these active uh, conversations are ongoing between U.S. and Israel about what Israel's military operations will look like once this current truce is over. Uh, the president and his top aides are telling his counterparts that they don't want to see the IDF replicate uh, the massive air campaign that we saw up in the north once they are ready to turn to the south. And one of the ideas we are told that is being discussed is the idea of moving some of the civilians that fled south earlier in the war uh, back up uh, to the north. Now, uh, this would be once the military operations up in northern Gaza have concluded. Uh, but I think, uh, Phil, you just showed in such a vivid way why this would be such a significant challenge, uh, given that so much uh, of northern Gaza, so many parts of that region has been completely decimated. And this is actually one of the major reasons why U.S. officials are so keen on seeing humanitarian aid not just flow into Gaza, but northern Gaza uh, in particular. Uh, now, Israel has, of course, made clear that it isn't done in northern Gaza, but that it does intend to eventually turn to southern Gaza. Uh, and one reason we are told is that there is intelligence that shows that Hamas leadership had fled south as well. Yeah, it's a great point. It really underscores a couple elements here that this is military operations that would be designed to go after that leadership. But also from the U.S. perspective, part of the concern is not just the fact that there's more than a million people that have fled to the South, overcrowded facilities aid a huge problem, but also that the aid comes in from down here in the South, through Egypt, through the Rafah crossing. I also, though, want to note that this isn't all happening in a vacuum. There are very real domestic political considerations in these behind-the-scenes talks. Israel remains a divisive issue inside the Democratic Party, inside the Senate Democratic Caucus, at a time when Biden needs all the support he can get. How's he navigating this right now? Yeah, I mean, there are so many reasons, Phil. This is so complicated for the president uh, here domestically back at home. Uh, of course, there are divisions in his own party about just how to support Israel, how much to support Israel. And we're seeing that play out uh, on Congress, uh, in Congress right now as lawmakers debate the issue of aid for Israel. Some members saying it needs to be conditional based on humanitarian provisions. Uh, this is something uh, that we're seeing play out as a tension as uh, there is a desire to end this war as quickly as possible, but also continue supporting Israel and its sort of stated mission of eradicating Hamas, making sure that it can never do again uh, what happened on October 7th. So I think this is why we're starting to see a little bit more emphasis coming from the White House on talking about what post-war uh, Gaza looks like. But one thing that is clear is that the White House clearly sees that the next, next phase of this war, once the truce is over uh, has to be different. Phil. All right, MJ Lee, been rolling out great reporting almost hourly over the course of the last several days from the White House North Lawn. Thank you. George Santos's time in Congress could be running out. He's set to respond to the looming expulsion vote as House Speaker Mike Johnson explains why he's so hesitant to kick Santos out. And more tributes overnight for Henry Kissinger, how presidents from here to China are remembering the famed diplomat. Secretary Kissinger really set the standard for everyone who followed uh, in, um, in this job. Few people 
uh, were better students of history, even fewer people did more to shape history than Henry Kissinger. Secretary of State Antony Blinken this morning honoring one of the most influential diplomats in American history, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who died at the age of 100. His influence can be felt in policy from Vietnam to the Middle East to China. He helped orchestrate President Richard Nixon's historic visit in 1972. Kissinger last visited July, last visited China rather, in July. CNN's Richard Roth has a look back at his controversial legacy. I know all of you will want to hear from the new Secretary of State. Henry Kissinger never really needed an introduction on the world stage again. Kissinger, the most famous statesman of the last half of the 20th century. Celebrated and controversial. I'm not going to make it. As Richard Nixon's national security advisor and Secretary of State, the diplomat wielded enormous power and influence so trusted that it was Kissinger who went to China on a secret mission to explore a historic opening of U.S. relations with communist China. Whoever went would be alone in Beijing with no communication. And therefore, if he didn't know Nixon's mind, he might do foolish things. Initially, there were fears a U.S.-China ping-pong exchange match would affect the high-stakes political gambit. Every uh, once in a while, something happens in diplomacy which transcends the drafting of cables. Vietnam. Casualties mounted as the Vietnamese gained territory. Nixon and an undiplomatic Kissinger thought more bombing of the North would help. Kissinger approved secret bombings of North Vietnamese units in Cambodia without congressional approval. He would say, sometimes statesmen have to choose among evils, moral compromises in messy conflicts. Kissinger and his Vietnamese counterpart, Le Duc Tho, were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their role in negotiating a ceasefire. I have to say, I have never dealt with a group of people as treacherous as the North Vietnamese leadership. Kissinger insisted trouble on the home front hurt chances to succeed in Vietnam. We lost the war because we were divided and also because we were too uncertain about what we wanted. Kissinger's support for a coup in Chile and pro-U.S. military strongmen in other parts of the world drew criticism. Kissinger's legacy would be contested decades later when he testified in Congress at the age of 91. Kissinger grew up in Germany with war clouds swirling. His family fled when he was 15. About half of the people I went to school with and about 13 members of my own family died in concentration camps. A Jewish Secretary of State who would later listen to his president criticize American Jewish leaders. It's about goddamn time that being Jew in America realized an American I only heard anti-Semitic comments when some Jewish group would attack him for something he had done. In the Middle East, Kissinger performed what came to be known as shuttle diplomacy to separate Israeli and Arab forces, setting the stage for future peace accords. When Nixon resigned as president, Kissinger stayed on as Gerald Ford's Secretary of State. His opinion still widely sought after by governments and businesses after leaving public office. You want to leave your country better off than you found it. And there's nothing in private life you can do that's as interesting and as fulfilling.
There was one job Kissinger said he never got to do in his life, a sports announcer. Derek who? However, the globe-trotting diplomat did star in some of history's biggest games. Former President George W. Bush, uh, who of course is an avid painter, honored Kissinger by releasing this portrait, calling him one of the most distinctive voices in foreign affairs and thanking Kissinger for his friendship. Let's bring in CNN presidential historian and the former director of the Nixon Presidential Library, Tim Naftali. Tim, we always appreciate your perspective. Uh, it is so striking. You know, Erica mentioned that he was over meeting with President Xi Jinping just a couple of months ago. Uh, Mike Turner, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said he was up in New York meeting with Henry Kissinger in September. He shaped history that is unequivocally the case, but he continued to after he was out of government. What's his legacy? Um, well, with Richard Nixon, he created a structure, a complicated structure, and a achieved a detente with the Soviet Union and an opening with China as a way of, uh, of uh, buffering the fact the United States was going to withdraw from Southeast Asia. Kissinger's great concern was that the United States would, uh, uh, it its influence would collapse as a superpower as a result of the fact that the United States had to get out of Vietnam. So with Nixon, uh, he designed this structure and it continues to influence us to this day as, as our relationship with China is extremely controversial. That relationship is built on the foundations set in place by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. There is, and rightfully so, such a focus on what he did shape um, because of his role in a professional capacity. But there are also a number of fascinating anecdotes about him in a personal capacity. Even this, uh, this quote that stood out to me overnight, saying at one point, the nice thing about being a celebrity is if you bore people, they think it's your fault, he once quipped. He spent time at okay. Studio 54. Oh, <laughs> uh, Henry Kissinger loved the limelight. Um, uh, he, he, he loved being the center of on the stage, the world stage, uh, and other stages too. Uh, he was perfectly adept at charming um, those who interacted with him. He got very good press, unlike Richard Nixon, who really didn't like to interact with people, uh, which actually created a tension between Nixon and Kissinger, which you can hear on the tapes. Yes, Kissinger liked the fact and knew that uh, he was the center of attention. He was not some retiring professor. He was a professor who loved theater. Tim Natale, uh, we always appreciate your expertise. There's a million things you can get into here, a very complicated and in some level divisive career, but one that undeniably has shaped history for decades. We appreciate it, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. The head of America's biggest bank seems to be all in on Nikki Haley, and he wants a surprising group to join him in supporting her. And Elon Musk lashes out at advertisers who fled his platform X. He has three words for them. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. This is the third time we're going through this. I don't care. I was sent here by the people of the 3rd District of New York. I represent them, not the political class in Washington, D.C. If they want to send me home, if they think this was a fair process, if they think this is how it should be done, and if they're confident that this is a constitutional way of doing it, God bless their is hearts. Is it inevitable it happens? That was Congressman George Santos. He's vowing to fight for his political life. In just two hours, the New York Republican is expected to speak on the steps of the Capitol before tomorrow's expected expulsion vote. And this comes, of course, after a scathing ethics committee report uh, detailed his alleged use, misuse, rather, of campaign funds on Airbnb, personal credit card debt, purchases at Hermes, Sephora, and OnlyFans. He also faces federal criminal charges. House Speaker Mike Johnson, though, is concerned that expelling Santos could set a troubling standard in Congress. We're gonna allow people to vote their conscience. I think it's the only appropriate thing we can do. Um, We've not whipped the vote and we wouldn't. Um, I I trust that people will make that decision thoughtfully and in good faith. Um, I personally have real reservations about doing this. I'm, I'm concerned about a precedent that may be set for that. Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst John Avalon, CNN political analyst and historian Leah wright Rigor, and CNN congressional correspondent Jessica Dean. First, I want to start with the durability of just the mention of George Santos and OnlyFans making everybody in our studio crack up every single time it happens. Like, it's a gift I, that keeps I, on giving. I appreciate that. Yeah. Jess, I'm to start with you. I'm not sure what I expected from the speaker yesterday. Mm-hmm. He has a very slim majority. There are numbers reasons why you wouldn't want to lose one of your members. However, were you surprised, given the ethics report? Well, the ethics report was so damning, right? And it came out, and in the end, I I, I am paraphrasing here, but it essentially said that George Santos used every single angle of all of this to further his personal financial situation. And it was very clear. So in a way, it gives some Republican members cover now who previously didn't feel comfortable, who said they were waiting on the ethics investigation, et cetera, et cetera, to vote to expel him. However, uh, to your point, Mike Johnson says he's not whipping the vote. He has reservations about what kind of precedent this might set. Uh, so it is, it'll be interesting to see who goes where when this vote actually happens. Yeah. Reservations. There's also the reality of what would be an even smaller margin. Yeah, There's also a big fundraiser happening in New York yep. in a matter of days. All of these things could be at play here. All of these things are interplayed. Look, I I think the issue is not so much concern about precedent. That was a reasonable argument, particularly before we had the ethics report. Um, But it's really about partisan margins. And it's part of the Republican Party's, you know, continuing debate within itself is is how much crazier are we going to tolerate to have narrow partisan margins in place? Um, You know, the New York Republicans don't want George Santos to be the face of the New York Republican Party. Uh, He is. Uh, the combination of Trump and Santos is is the larger problem. And I just want to emphasize one thing as you hear him sort of whinge and, and, and complain. George Santos is not a victim, right? He perpetrated fraud upon his constituents by lying about every single aspect of his life and biography and then treating his campaign like a grift. 
And and so, you know, any any show, show that there's actually spine and moral backbone and some kind of standard for members of uh, Congress, I think is probably a good thing right now. Whinge. Whinge. Yes, you're okay. welcome. We're going to work on that Thank after the show. <laughs> Leah, I, I think John makes a good point. You know, you can laugh at everything. The absurdity of it all is obscene uh, on some level, and it's almost, it's cartoonish, uh, both in presentation and in the actual report itself. But to take a step back, precedent here, not from the... Mike Johnson perspective, but in the United States House of Representatives, expelling a member is something that just doesn't happen. This is a huge deal. What does this mean for Congress? So it means everything. But I got to say, George Santos, as a fraud, as a scammer, is in good company because that's largely where we've seen people expelled in the past. So we've had only five people expelled in, in really the history of the House of Representatives. And three of those people have been under the Civil War, disloyalty to the Union. The other two have been more recent, last 20, uh, 20 40 years. And those people have been because they have committed scam, bribery, fraud. So George Santos is very much in that faction. The difference, however, is that he's a Republican. We've never had a Republican expelled from the House of Representatives. And I think it speaks to something much bigger about the Republican Party, including this idea about, you know, thou shall not speak ill of another Republican. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, we know that's, that's not true. That's gone. We know that that's gone. But it does, you know, Johnson is very much still thinking about some of these things, even as the biggest clown out of the last 20 years, has come to represent the face of the Republican Party. Well, and this is is about defining deviancy down in the wake of Donald Trump, too. But there is a big difference, which is the other two members at post-Civil War were convicted. That's a fair and important contrast. I saw Jim Trafficking up there. Uh, uh, He was my grandparents' congressman from Youngstown, Ohio, (laughs) much to their great displeasure. Um, But I think you see a certain certain theme. Uh, And and, and look, you know, how how much more, more evidence do you need? Well, yeah, and how much more are they willing to accept? That's the, yeah. how much more is the Republican Party willing to accept? Which I think is a really important question. I do want to get your take quickly on mm. Jamie Dimon. Yes. J.P. JP Morgan's CEO saying he's encouraging progressive liberal Democrats to come on over and get on the Nikki Haley train. Yes. What is the impact of that? Well, look, I mean, he's saying everyone should sort of rush to the, the, the Nikki Haley train. He is, but he's Somewhat specifically calling out, he did. right? And, he's and, saying, hey, this is a place for you. Well, and I think Why? the argument he's making is particularly in states that have open primaries like New Hampshire, mm-hmm. where there's not a contest on the Democratic side, re- Democrats can play a constructive role in, in reducing the polarization and crazy in our country by supporting either Nikki Haley, in his case, or Chris Christie's made a similar argument. Um, this isn't the spoiler scenario that people who like closed partisan primaries invoke. This is actually about the Republican Party has been hijacked by Donald Trump, and it's important to stop this for the country. That's the argument that Jamie Dimon is making. And I'm glad to see him at least get off the sidelines, because a lot of folks have been a little bit finger in the wind. Even he, he sort of said, well, maybe I'd support Trump. I don't want to alienate a future president, potentially. But that's an important step. This, Liz Cheney made this point in the excerpt of the book that CNN published exclusively the other day. This is a time for a broader movement to stop Donald Trump for Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And I think that's what he's appealing to. All right, guys, stay with us. Jessica Dean, John Avon, Leah Wright, Rigor, don't go anywhere. We've got a lot more to get to. Uh, Including Elon Musk and his very clear three-word message to advertisers. He also reveals what he thinks would actually kill X. And the pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas is extended. We're going to ask Israeli officials what that means, how this is going to change things going forward. If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go yourself. But go 
yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I hope it is. Seems pretty clear. Uh, also rather rare to see a leader of a public company lash out like that. But this is not just any leader of any company. Elon Musk there in his first interview since endorsing that anti-Semitic post on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Now, it's worth noting he called that post his dumbest ever of more than 30,000 tweets. And then he proceeded to do what you just saw. Our guests are back with us. Uh, John, the business model is advertising. Mm -hmm. He is a public company CEO. I, I guess I just don't understand the strategy. Uh, I think you shouldn't look for strategy. I think oh. this is about impulse. Um, look, th this has not been about value creation, but value destruction. And he's got his own reasons for it. You know, Elon Musk is, a, is a yet another complicated cat. Um, he is brilliant. Um, the work he's done around, I would argue, SpaceX and Tesla has been really transformative. His work around Twitter slash X has been a giant dumpster fire, almost by design. And alienating the advertisers you're depending upon for the surge of the, uh, the, the you know, company. The contrast to guys like Charlie Munger, who also pa who passed away this week, who focused on stability and common sense and, and sort of value creation over time. This is the opposite of that. And this is not an enlightened super ego. This is, this is a guy in, in a lot of trouble on stage, I think, just dissembling a bit. But there's also this, it's fascinating to me because it's this sort of circular, I can't follow his logic, right? He's going after the advertiser. I mean, I think the New York Times was estimating they're going to lose $75 million in ad revenue mm -hmm. at this point. So he's going after the advertisers, basically saying, this is all on you. And when and if when my company fails, this is all going to be your fault. But yeah. to your point, A, this is the business model that you decided to take. Right. And B, a lot of this was all stirred up by you and your policies and your tweets. Mm -hmm. I, I also think he keeps saying, you can blackmail me, or is it that they're holding him accountable mm -hmm. for the comments that he made? And that's what you can do in a capitalist society. You can choose not to participate. You can choose not to advertise. Utterly consistent with free speech principles, which is the argument he makes. Right. Yes. What's right. that? What's the great quote? Um, some men just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I think that completely well, applies uh, to this scenario. He's Everything is going up well, in flames. Or, at or, I actually, yeah. quite literally, he doesn't want the world to burn with regard to his work at Tesla and the Boring Company and SpaceX. But but with, 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 with regard to Twitter, with regard <laughs> Twitter? to this particular tributary of his mind, giant waste of time right. for everybody, including him. Yeah. His top advertising executive, uh, I think technically the head of the company, who was brought over from NBC with much fanfare, this is her entire focus, was literally sitting in the audience mm. right now, or last or yesterday. I, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out if you're Linda Yaccarino, what are you thinking right now? You're crying in your office, <laughs> right? This is oh. your, your <laughs> this is this is what you have to deal with. But I think the also the reality is that she probably went backstage or, or you know, as soon as the event ended and started making a lot of phone calls, because certainly advertisers are not going to be reassured by, you know, the former head of the company, but the owner of the company basically telling them to, you know, telling the world, go screw yourselves. No, they need that money. <laughs> they, they, they literally yeah. need that money. And it was interesting, too, to see a week or was it two weeks ago when all of these advertising executives and you know, high level folks came out and basically said, hey, Linda. We really respect you. We think it's time for you to step down and sort of save face here, which was interesting to see them. It's also, I think, so interesting when you look at where the company is. And it continues to raise the question of how much longer is X viable? How much longer does this go on? I, that's the question I was thinking to myself yesterday. Look, we all 
maybe just me, but I feel like we all can kind of camp out there on X, formerly known as Twitter, as journalists, as people. Only when we're on deadline. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only when we need, you know, a distraction. Uh, but, but I just think to the broader population, it is increasingly not relevant to their lives. Mm -hmm. And it, you're just in there, and, and these advertisers are concerned about the, you know, all this content that's racist or anti-Semitic that they're getting bumped up next to. I just don't know how long it's relevant. Real quick, keep, keep the public. It plays an important role when there are people making sure it doesn't become a cesspool of anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories. When is that? What? When is that? <laughs> what it was at one point, however flawed it was. Yeah. Yes, you know, stop blackmailing me with my own words. That's, That's, right. Right. That's right. I hate it's it when that It's a take. <laughs> Jessica Dean, John Avalon, Leah Rager. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Um, we are very closely monitoring this fragile pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas, that last-minute deal that came together. We're going to fill you in with more. Next. And left out in the cold migrants try to take shelter in Chicago's brutal temperatures. This morning, the Senate preparing for a new funding fight over aid to Israel and Ukraine. A vote could happen as early as next week. Some progressive Senate Democrats keep pushing for conditions on aid to Israel. Others are warning against it, while Republicans reject the idea. And speaking of Republicans, they say they'll only pass aid to Ukraine if Congress passes tighter immigration laws. Well, this morning, the Biden administration is ramping up the pressure, releasing this map that you see here to show how blue and red states, it says, have benefited economically from helping Ukraine. Joining us now is Senator Angus King, an independent from Maine. He sits on the Intelligence and Armed Services Committee. Senator, good to have you with us this morning. Um, let's start there on Ukraine, if we could. Senator Murphy, pretty skeptical um, that a deal could be reached, certainly this week anyway. Lindsey Graham had warned that um, it doesn't have to be everything I want, he said, but it has to be major. Um, how concerned are you this morning about that funding? Well, I, I am concerned because it, it's uh, really sort of illogical to connect border security with aid for Ukraine. They're, they're two very separate issues. Ukraine uh, is critical. Uh, to back away, to leave Ukraine uh, to, to the uh, tender embrace of Vladimir Putin would be a historic, and I mean historic, mistake that would haunt this country for generations. Uh, it would undermine our credibility around the world with our allies. Uh, it would certainly uh, destabilize Europe. It would open uh, the door to, in Eastern Europe to, to Putin's ambitions. It would be a huge mistake. Now, having said all that, Chris Murphy and James Langford and others are working on something on the border. And if it can be narrowed to the point where it does indeed increase border security, uh, I think both sides might be able to come together on, on a principle like that. Uh, both pe people on both sides of the aisle believe in border security. This is not an immigration bill. This is talking about uh, doing something about the uh, unsustainable number of people that are coming to the border, mostly asylum seekers, and uh, how to manage that, uh, how to manage the flow that the cartels are essentially sending to us. Uh, I think is something that's worth working on. So, I, I don't like to see it tied to Ukraine aid, however, but if, uh, if that's what uh, the Republicans are insisting upon, then we've got to make a good faith effort to try to find something that everybody can live with. In terms of that good faith effort, um, you say they might be able to come up with something, if they can come up with something. What is your sense of how close those negotiations are this morning? Well, I've had discussions with uh, both sides uh, as recently as yesterday afternoon. My sense is that the issues are narrowing, but 
you know, that that remains to be seen. And, and you know, this is a tough sell on, on, on both sides. I mean, I've seen uh, press releases on the right side or the right wing of the Republican Party saying, don't, you know, don't do anything, you know, build the wall and all that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, getting there. But but I, I think uh, I have a lot of confidence in, in Chris Murphy and James Langford. They're leading this. They're two very capable, smart guys who know this issue inside and out. Uh, and I'm I'm uh, I'm betting that they'll that they'll get somewhere. All right. We'll be watching that. Meantime, you signed a letter to the president um, earlier this month looking for details on how the administration would guarantee that Israel is properly mitigating civilian casualties in Gaza. There's been a lot of talk about imposing conditions on U.S. aid to Israel. Are they necessary? Well, I've done a lot of work on this and, and in fact, have really thought long and hard about it myself. There, there are inherent conditions on military aid to anybody uh, that's in U.S. law, Title 22, and the, there are other sections of, of U.S. law that, that uh, talk about uh, you can't use U.S. aid for uh, gross violations of, of human rights. So the question is whether something in addition to that is necessary. The administration is working very hard to, to try to uh, moderate the the uh, the bombing campaign, for example, and and uh, I think they've they've done a good job. But the real question is 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 Israel listening, uh, and and that's really the the difficulty. I don't know if conditioning the aid is the is the right answer, but mm -hmm. I think Israel has to understand that they're losing the information war, and they have to be much more uh, discreet and surgical in their war against Hamas. Uh, finally. Hamas is, they are really bad uh, people. They, the, what they did on October 7th was pure evil. And, you know, you see these tunnels. Think about that for a minute. They built these tunnels and with all that concrete that could have been infrastructure for their people, the Palestinian people in Gaza. They don't care about the Palestinian people. They want to exterminate Israel, and Israel's got to, to uh, put them out of business. But they've got to do it in such a way as to not... Uh, unduly uh, burden civilians. That's mm -hmm. that's a principle of modern warfare. Um, I do want to um, talk to you about this new bill that you're introducing today, um, specifically that would address, um, in, in the hopes of obviously present, preventing another mass shooting, like we just saw, unfortunately, in your state. It would limit, among other things, the number of rounds a guns magazine could hold, um, also ban certain devices that, you know, can convert, uh, convert conventional weapons. You have a fair amount of Democratic support here. I'm curious, um, did you reach out to your fellow senator from Maine, Senator Collins, on this? Well, we've reached out to a number of Republican senators, and, and they're reviewing it. They're looking at it. This is a new approach uh, to, to this problem of assault weapons. And what we're really focusing on is is the the way it works, the way they, the gun actually works rather than what it looks like. And the heart of it, Erica, is that those big curved magazines that you see that hold 15, 20, 40 bullets, uh, and, and our bill would essentially prohibit that. They would say that a, a, a gun that, uh, that operated as, a, as these weapons do, as any rifle does, cannot have a detachable magazine and must have an internal magazine with no more than 10 bullets. That's it. And that, that's, we're focusing on the lethality of these mm -hmm. things rather than what they look like. And the whole idea here is to save lives. And one of the problems in a mass shooting is if the shooter doesn't have to stop and reload, they're much more deadly. 
And for example, the shooter in Maine, as I understand it, had two magazines duct taped together so when one was empty, he could flip it over and then jam the, the, the new one in. That's what our law would prohibit, along with the, the, these devices like a bump stock that turns uh, a, a, a gun that you have to pull the trigger each time it fires into what right. amounts to a machine gun. So that's what we're after. We are talking to Republicans about it. To me, this is mm -hmm. purely consistent with banning machine guns 100 years ago or sawed-off shotguns. These are particularly dangerous, useful only for killing people, and we, we want to we diminish that lethality. We will watch to see um, where that proposal goes. appreciate you joining us this morning, Senator Angus King. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. Well, this morning, we reflect on the historic and complicated legacy of Henry Kissinger, the man who wrote his political biography. Join CNN This Morning. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, new this morning, we're hearing for the first time from one of the three Palestinian college students shot in Vermont last weekend. Kenan Abdel Hamid says they were walking down the street wearing traditional Palestinian scarves, when they were shot, he believes the attack was motivated by hate, saying, quote, we all agreed essentially in one second, probably because we spoke Arabic. The 20-year-old said his experience as an EMT helped him stop his bleeding before urging officers to rush him and his friends to the hospital. Quote, with gunshot wound victims, there's a better chance of survival if the police just drive you straight to the hospital, he said. This morning, Abdel Hamid is back with his family and is beginning physical and emotional recovery. The other two victims are still in the hospital. Authorities were considering whether to charge the suspect with a hate crime. And CNN This Morning continues right now. The truce between Israel and Hamas extended to a seventh day. 16 hostages were freed, among those five children and one American Israeli woman. Big, big priority for the White House to see this truce extended. We told them what happened in northern parts of Gaza cannot happen in the southern parts. We're still in a fight. We can't leave anyone behind. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has died. He was 100 years old. One of the most influential American statesmen. He's seen as the kind of ultimate realist. Both admired and hated. Kissinger provided a genius for playing multi-level diplomatic chess. House is set to vote this Friday with spelling Republican Congressman George Santos. A growing number of Republicans say they are going to support this expulsion effort. I personally have real reservations. If they're confident that this is a constitutional way of doing it, God bless their is hearts. It Well, good morning and welcome. New this morning, the pause between Israel and Hamas, it's going to last at least one more day. The question, though, this morning, how long will this pause last? An Israeli official says the pause could be extended again only if Hamas releases 10 living hostages each day. Now, Hamas says it had initially offered a different deal last night, seven women and children hostages and the bodies of three more who were dead. Israel rejected that offer. Israel says it has a new list of hostages expected to be released today. And new this morning, Israel says there are 145 hostages who remain in Gaza. That includes 11 foreigners, 27 women, and three people who are under the age of 18. There were 16 additional hostages released on Wednesday, including an American woman among them. People cheered in the streets, waving Israeli flags uh, after they were free. Among those released, 13-year-old Gali, Gali Tarshansky. We spoke to her mother this week. 
said they could not grieve the family, could not grieve the loss of her 15-year-old brother, Lior, until Gali returned home. That is underway now. Right now, diplomatic efforts are ramping up. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel, meeting behind closed doors with the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, at this moment. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Tel Aviv. Matthew, last-minute extension, literally, it was, I think, eight or nine minutes until the deadline. How tenuous is this situation as the push to extend it starts again today? Yeah, I think it's very tenuous, Phil, because as we've seen, Hamas are already finding it difficult to gather uh, 10 uh, women, Israeli women and children to be swapped in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners and uh, a continuation of the, of the pause, as well as an influx of, of aid efforts. They offered um, seven uh, people uh, yesterday who were alive, uh, three bodies as well. That was rejected, uh, we're told, uh, by the, uh, by the um, Israeli authorities who say they want 10 live uh, Israeli hostages uh, in exchange for a, a continued pause in the fighting. But that is obviously increasingly difficult and it's not clear at the moment uh, how many people are on uh, the current list that's been offered by Hamas uh, to Israel to be swapped uh, today. But clearly it's something that's an ongoing sort of process uh, of uh, negotiation. Uh, the hope is, of course, that there can be another list agreed uh, for an eighth consecutive day uh, to allow that pause to continue and to allow more um, Israeli hostages to be set free. I think possibly one issue is going to be, you know, as the number of women and children um, that are in Gaza is reduced through their releases, um, it's going to be more difficult for uh, Hamas to, to bring those people together in a way that they can be sort of handed over to the Israelis. So we'll soon have to be looking at sort of male hostages, uh, possibly uh, hostages who are members of the Israeli Defense uh, Forces as well. That's ongoing. Meanwhile, uh, in Jerusalem, there has been an attack by two Palestinian gunmen, uh, killing three Israelis, injuring now another seven uh, Israeli civilians in a, in a, in a gun attack uh, in, in Jerusalem. The Palestinian uh, gunmen were killed by passers-by, a couple of them, I think, um, off-duty members of the Israeli uh, security forces. There have been tensions elsewhere in the West Bank as well, with killings in the Palestinian town of Jenin. Um, as well, and it just underlines that the, that the tensions that have been, you know, you know, continuing to simmer in the region are, are boiling over in, in, at various locations, even as these hostage negotiations continue. Phil. Yeah, absolutely, and Matthew, appreciate it. Thank you. Joining us now is Avi Hyman. He's an official with the Israeli, an official Israeli government spokesperson. Avi, we appreciate your time this morning. Uh, the actual construct of what was agreed to last night, there have been reports that it was eight women and children, the two dual Russian-Israeli citizens uh, that were unilaterally released yesterday would be considered part uh, of the 10 that the Israeli government has been unequivocal, uh, must be included in each step of these extensions. Uh, can you confirm that? Good morning, Phil. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I can tell you that there's a lot of different things being reported currently. But as an Israeli government spokesman, I will wait until those people are on uh, Israeli ground before I can confirm anything. We've seen for multiple days now Hamas playing psychological games with the people of Israel, with the families of the hostages, releasing children without their parents, parents without their children, changing lists at the last minute. So we will uh, wait um, to see them uh, uphold that, that agreement. And uh, if that agreement isn't upheld, we will move to the next stage. One of the concerns about the initial phases of the agreement now that there's an extension has been Red Cross visitation 
of the hostages was a provision of the original agreement that had not come to fruition. Did anything about last night's extension start to lock that into place? Not to my knowledge. We know that from the beginning, Hamas has rejected any notion of uh, visitation rights from uh, from the Red Cross or any sort of humanitarian aid. We're, see we're hearing the horror stories of, uh, of the hostages coming out. Um, children, children being made to watch uh, those horrific videos and told at gunpoint if, if they cry or if they uh, make any noise, they'll be shot. Um, Emily, that Irish-Israeli girl who was released, Emily, uh, she was released and she's, she's whispering. She's scared to raise her voice because she was sat there, she thought she was there for a year in an underground Hamas dungeon held by masks, monsters with machine guns. Uh, Hamas said yesterday, uh, before the agreement was reached, they had proposed uh, seven women and children and the bodies of three other Israelis. That was rejected, uh, according to, to uh, Hamas and U.S. officials. Um, the, uh, the, my question right now is, of the 145, I believe, is the latest number the Israeli government put out uh, of hostages being held at this moment, are all 145 considered alive? Do we have any idea now that Hamas is offering uh, bodies as an exchange uh, if some of those are not? I, I wish I could answer that question. And I pray and hope that every single one of those hostages is alive and well. Uh, unfortunately, knowing who we're up against, we're, we're, we're up against Hamas, who plowed through our borders on October 7th, killing, butchering, raping, beheading, that's who we're up against. So we hope for the best for all of the hostages, but we can't confirm that. What we can say is that we have demanded from Hamas from the beginning to release the hostages unconditionally. We have said from the beginning that this war has two missions. One is not on top of the other. The first mission is to dismantle Hamas, to destroy Hamas, to ensure that never again will an atrocity, the worst atrocity on Jewish people since the Holocaust, be able to uh, be perpetrated again. And secondly, is to release every one of those 240 hostages. We cannot leave one behind. One of the complicating factors uh, that U.S. officials uh, have spoken to me about is your dealing or through intermediaries dealing with Hamas specifically here. There are there's a belief that other groups, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, others potentially as well, are also holding hostages. Are there any communications through intermediaries with those other entities? From our perspective, Hamas governs Gaza. Hamas has made it very clear that Hamas governs Gaza. Um, it's, it's a bit of a, a hard thing to believe that they couldn't make a few phone calls to their various factions, which are essentially, uh, you know, like, like Islamic Jihad. It's like their little brother, whereas Hamas gets 93% of their uh, funding from Iran. Islamic Jihad gets 100% of their funding from Iran. These people work together. They perpetrated the uh, October 7th massacre together. And uh, we call upon them to stop playing games, to release our hostages. This is a crime against humanity. And it's time that they uh, be back home with their families or, or, or the family members that, that are still alive. Because we know that, uh, for example, that American girl, Abigail, is free. Right. But her mother and father were killed. She is now an orphan. Just, just quickly, because we're almost out of time, um, what do you believe the prospects are for securing an, another extension uh, at the end of the current period? Well, our cards have been the same. Our cards are on the table. 
if they release uh, 10 uh, live uh, Israeli uh, hostages, then we will continue for a day and we will take it day by day. Avi Hyman, Israeli government spokesman, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're just about an hour away now from Congressman George Santos's uh, expected words. He's said to speak on the steps of the Capitol. He could, of course, be expelled tomorrow. We'll speak with one of his colleagues about why he does plan to vote to kick Santos out. And new overnight, the death of one of the most consequential and controversial figures in U.S. foreign policy. How Henry Kissinger's impact is being felt still today. This morning, the world is remembering one of the most influential and complicated foreign policy figures in American history. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger died yesterday at his home in Connecticut. He was 100 years old. Kissinger served, of course, as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State to President Nixon. He would actually go on to advise 12 presidents, becoming a singular figure in foreign policy and was a diplomat till the end, meeting with President Xi Jinping of China as recently as July. Now, Kissinger, of course, navigated U.S. policy during the Vietnam War and most notably during the Cold War. He helped open communist China to the United States, but he also had critics, very real critics. Some accused him of being a war criminal for policies they say contributed to massive civilian deaths in places like Cambodia in the 1970s. Let's bring in historian Alan Schwartz. He wrote Kissinger's political biography, Henry Kissinger and American Power, and is a history and political science professor at Vanderbilt University. Professor, we appreciate your time this morning. I don't think anybody uh, knows this, knows this individual better. The idea of the complicated legacy, undeniably one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent. Uh, figure because of those efforts. How did he view himself in his legacy? Well, I think he um, he had a measured view of himself. He I think uh, he also had a very high estimation of himself. He frequently used so self-deprecating humor to, to sort of capture that. But he did not have any regrets about his policies. He was quite unapologetic. If you compare him, say, to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, um, who wrote a, a sort of mea culpa about the Vietnam War, Kissinger never felt that way. He felt that he had pursued policies that were in the American national interest and that ultimately history would uh, both vindicate and judge those policies based on that. And was that, too, then, how he, how he approached that criticism, which, which has been significant over the years, Mm -hmm. um, would that have been the same approach? Oh, yes. Yeah, he was quite, uh, I mean, he, he could uh, defend himself quite ably. Um, he, <laughs> he made a joke of when he would admit to making mistakes, but he, he would acknowledge occasionally uh, misjudgments during the time he was in office, but he did not, um, he would uh, argue quite forcefully back that his policies uh, on the whole uh, produced more uh, benefit for America than uh, than causing harm. I, I've been so fascinated by his post-government role, even over the course of the last several months, obviously meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, meeting with congressional lawmakers as recently uh, as September as well. What did he view as his role uh, in this period of time at the, towards the end of his life? Well, I think Kissinger always worried that uh, instability, the, the type of thing he had experienced as a young man in Germany, uh, the, the uh, concerns he had that the United States would not be able to maintain the type of position that he had hoped it would as a, as a uh, sort of guarantor or balance in the balance of power. So he continued to want to uh, play a role 
uh, in influencing uh, both American decision-making, but also as an intermediary. And so he had enormous, he was uh, respected enormously in China and as a friend of China, but also someone who could speak directly to the Chinese about American interests and American concerns. And I think he saw his role uh, almost to the end of his life as someone trying to mediate, uh, trying to negotiate. He was a, 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 an effective, very effective negotiator. And um, he uh, continued to play that role all the way to the end. A role he relished, um, one he sought out as well, loved the limelight, as we know, as a biographer. <laughs> Can you share with us a story that, mm -hmm. that maybe really surprised you in your research as you're pulling all of this together, something that maybe the folks at home haven't heard before? Well, I think, I think one of the things that I was most surprised by um, when I began my research and, and, and in doing my book, I had worked previously on the United States' relationship with Germany. And I was always fascinated by the fact that Kissinger, although he had been exiled from that country, had to flee and, and flee, fled and would have uh, lost 11 relatives in the Holocaust, nevertheless maintained a, a close tie to Germany. And uh, when he went back as an American soldier after World War II and was in the occupation, he rejected calls to be vindictive and to punish uh, Germans indiscriminately, uh, basically arguing that that's not the way you create peace. And for the rest of his life, he maintained uh, he was particularly interested in, in sort of rehabilitating Germany, the German democracy. And um, I think this is a this is an aspect of his life that's not very well known. Mm -hmm. The degree to which he actually sought to be constructive in the relationship between the United States and Germany, which is now one of the absolute pillars of the international order, is the uh, connection between the United States and Europe, but also most importantly between the United States and Germany. A fascinating and complex life on every level. Professor Thomas Allen Schwartz, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. New overnight, the military pause between Israel and Hamas extended now for a seventh day. Uh, it, it almost didn't happen. That announcement really came just moments before, minutes before that deal was set to expire. New details for you this morning on which details, on which hostages rather, could be released today. And the battle over immigration leaves some migrants on the street. How they're trying to stay warm in Chicago's brutal cold. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. And so what we've said as a leadership team is we're going to allow people to vote their conscience. I think it's the only appropriate thing we can do. Um, we've not whipped the vote, and we wouldn't. Um, I, I trust that people will make that decision thoughtfully and in good faith. Um, I personally have real reservations about doing this. I, I'm, I'm concerned about a precedent that may be set for that. That was Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson. He says that despite his reservations, the expulsion vote for Congressman George Santos is expected tomorrow. Santos is expected to speak from the Capitol steps in just about 45 minutes. The embattled New York congressman says he will not resign. Now, if Santos is voted out of Congress, he would be just the sixth House member ever to be formally ousted in the face of damning allegations about his conduct. Support to boot him is mounting among Republicans after that damning most recent ethics report, it concluded Santos, quote, sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit. Our next guest has stated clearly where he stands. I think, I think George Santos is toast. Uh -huh. Does that mean that you're a yes? Uh, that's a yes. Joining us now is Republican Congressman Ryan Zinke of Montana. That was rather clear about where you stood. Do you wish, though, that the speaker had taken a more forceful position 
uh, aligned with where you are? Well, you, you know, we all waited until the, the ethics committee report was filed. And if you read it closely, there's no doubt in my mind, there's no doubt from the conclusion of the report that Santos lied and was fraudulent uh, in his election. So to me, you know, is it is in the in the best interest of the, of the U.S. House of Representatives to have members that that are serving on the basis of 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 truth uh you know campaigns are hard but when it, when when you're fraudulent from the very beginning i don't think it's the best interest of the house and i certainly don't think it's in the best interest of the country and i've heard the argument well the majority it, it, the same the same decision should be made whether we had a two-person majority or a 40-person majority because the issue is the same is this member uh, is his presence in the best interest of, of Congress or not? And in my judgment, uh, he, he was elected through fraud, and therefore the House has an obligation to police its own. Well, the other argument as well is precedent. While there have been six other expulsions, none before for somebody who hadn't been convicted or was a member of the Confederacy. And I think what's interesting to me, you know, when you left the Interior Department, you had a number, you had investigations, uh, ethics investigations underway. Your lawyer at the time and since even in the wake of the conclusion of those investigations, that there were political smears. Had you not had due process, uh, were you concerned that perhaps things would have ended up differently for you uh, as a cabinet official? Well, that, that's why we took it to the Ethics Committee, and it took a long time, and they were very, very thorough. And I think the results of the committee report are damning. I, I don't think it's in dispute. And so I do think that the House has an obligation to police its own uh, when, when you see this level of, of fraud. And look, he's, a, he's, a, he's an affable person. Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't begrudge him personally, but I do, I do look at the institution as a whole deserves to have members that uphold a standard. And, you know, we, we argue about, you know, across the country lawlessness, uh, but also Congress has an obligation to be an example to, the, to, the, to America and the rest of the country that members here are held to a standard. You uh, recently endorsed the former president, President Donald Trump. You have a unique perspective, as we noted. You were a cabinet official uh, in his first administration. It has been fascinating to watch over the course of the last several years that uh, a number of cabinet officials, a number of White House senior staffers have all come out and warned against uh, a re-election of the former president. Why are they wrong? Well, you know, at this point, uh, Donald Trump is as much as a movement as he is a candidate. And I think America looks at it, we want to get things done. We see the path of the current administration wrong on foreign policy, wrong on domestic policy, wrong across the board on policy. And with, with President Trump, he got things done. And, you know, working for him, he was a great boss. You know, and I could separate, you know, personality from policy. I focused on policy, you know, energy being one of them. Look, when I came in, we were 8.3 million barrels a day and beholden to foreign interests. After two years, we were 12.5 million barrels a day, the world's largest exporter of energy. And by the way, we lowered emissions. And people forget, you know, both energy and the environment, President Trump will give you an environment. The right. Great American Outdoors Act, the largest investment in our public lands as far as our forests and, and parks in the history of this country. So I, I like the fact that he can get things done. Should note that... Now there are over 13 million barrels a day in the current administration. Uh, the, but, uh, but I understand your policy perspective, particularly from a regulatory side of things. Uh, given the conflict that is ongoing right now in the Middle East, I, I did want to ask you about a recent legislation uh, you proposed uh, that would have revoked 
visas uh, for Palestinians uh, since October 1st would also block uh, new entrances and arrivals. You've come under sharp criticism from two Jewish Democrats who are unequivocally pro-Israel. Greg Lansman uh, is one of them, saying that this is uh, essentially an attack with no basis uh, and leads or drives towards things like hatred and Islamophobia. What's your response? Well, here's the basis. Uh, This administration is incapable of vetting or screening individuals. I'll give you a couple examples. Afghanistan, remember the C-17s? Who was on it? How about our southern border? We have hundreds, hundreds of individuals that are on the terrorist watch list and reports verified that in Hamas, remember Hamas is a government. It's also a terrorist organization and there are terrorists integrated into the refugees. So looking back from a SEAL perspective, former SEAL commander's perspective is a look, October 1st, and these are are visas issued by who? The Palestinian Authority, the same authority that is Hamas. There's no difference. Can I I ask you, I mean, the Palestinian Authority issues the visas. The Israelis actually have some oversight uh, and regulations tied to those visas as well. In terms of refugees, the numbers are incredibly small. I I understand you can make the point uh, about arrivals. But I think the question is, you know, of the examples that that your team put out uh, as background, three of them were about... Syrian nationals. Uh, Three of them were about general reports warning writ large uh, about uh, terror ideology in the wake of October 7th. The one was ambiguous in terms of the location. What evidence do you have specifically that this is a problem? Let's look at the evidence of vetting and screening. We have as many as 50 million illegal immigrants in this country in our southern border. When you have hundreds of people on the terrorist watch list that are at abducted or, 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 or looked at, and then, and then hundreds more are in this country, and how many terrorists does it take to commit an act? Well, how many did it take in 9-11? So do you ban so everyone, my, though? Like, I mean, if, if that's the case, then why do you just ban everyone? Well, the, you know, what I'd like to see is this administration capable, capable of, of screening or vetting. And clearly they're not. Look at the southern border as an example. Do they vet people? And they say, we're going to look at biometrics. Well, if you're not in a database, biometrics don't matter. So you you look at what's happening on the southern border, Afghanistan, remember the C-17s, and of course the only reports, verified reports, that there are Hamas terrorists integrated in, in the refugees. Although few, but remember where they're coming from. Hamas is a terrorist organization as well as Hamas is a government in Gaza. So we should not freely accept individuals that, that support or, or are part of a terrorist organization internationally recognized. So it has nothing to do with, with the people or Palestinians. I have no hatred or, you know, yeah. or yeah, against any type of people. But I do want to make sure that we protect our country and, and making sure that this country is safe. And right now I have zero confidence in Biden administration vetting or screening anyone. It is very specifically targeted, though, that is for sure. Congressman Ryan Zinke, Republican from Montana, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Hey, great to be with you, Phil. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he is about to send more migrants to northern cities. This, of course, just as temperatures in places like Chicago are dropping, in some cases below zero. We have a live report for you just ahead. Uh, The temperature at this moment in Chicago just above freezing. At least 20,000 additional migrants from the southern border are headed to the Windy City. 
According to the Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott says his state has already bused some 70,000 migrants to cities across the United States. Cities run by Democrats, among them Washington, D.C., New York, Philadelphia, Denver, L.A., and he says he does plan to send more. Seen as Whitney Wilde is in Chicago this morning, more migrants headed to the city. Temperatures edging up slightly, but it is still bitterly cold outside, Whitney. Absolutely, Erica. And that slightly uh, that slight temperature above freezing represents a marked improvement uh, after a very cold week here, a bitterly cold week that put renewed pressure on city officials to move these migrants indoors. As temperatures dipped into the low teens with wind chills of around zero this week, many migrants living on the street found Chicago's unfamiliar climate unforgiving. This man said he has been living in a tent and now feels sick. With help from a translator, Dr. Amanda Bradkey offers care to migrants awaiting placement at a shelter. A lot of what we're seeing is upper respiratory infections, whether that be a different virus or we're seeing a lot of strep throat. I'm also seeing some pneumonia. More than 1,100 migrants are still living at police stations and airports, down from more than 3,000 earlier this fall. The pace of new arrivals has slowed but not stopped. We were there as a bus dropped off dozens of migrants at an already crowded police station. More than 23,000 migrants have arrived in Chicago since August 2022. Much of the influx driven by Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who says northern cities should take on more migrants to ease the strain at the border. We've never been in a situation like this, right? All this is unprecedented. Older person Andre Vasquez heads the city council's Committee on Immigrant and Refugee Rights. What is your biggest fear? I mean, my, my biggest fear, thinking about it right now, winter time's the most immediate. Snow's gonna hit. If we don't find decompression and really find other spaces for folks to live in and get to work, um, it's really concerning. City officials are opening more shelters and phasing in a 60-day limit on stays. Mayor Brandon Johnson says the city is partnering with more than a dozen faith groups to take migrants off the street. We cannot abandon families and asylum seekers and let them go through Chicago's winter alone. Now the state is funding a massive military-grade tent in the Brighton Park neighborhood to house migrants, despite fierce opposition from some residents and questions about whether the area, a former industrial site, is safe. Older woman Julia Ramirez represents Brighton Park. When we're thinking about the most vulnerable, whether it's the residents of Brighton Park or asylum seekers, they deserve to have a humane and dignified process to make sure they get shelter. Work at that site has already begun, but the environmental assessment to determine whether or not it's safe for migrants to live there won't be available until Friday. State and city officials insist no one will be allowed inside unless that site is determined to be safe. They're targeting mid-December to start opening doors there. Meanwhile, in the short term, the city is offering warming buses like the one you see over my shoulder for migrants out in the cold overnight. Back to you. Winnie Wild, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. New overnight, at least three people are dead and seven others wounded in Jerusalem after police say Palestinian gunmen opened fire at a bus stop. We've got new details coming in. Plus, Elon Musk was uh, pretty clear with his thoughts. You can read them there at the bottom of your screen. Here's a little bit more, though, if you just want to hear it for yourself. It's his message. Go yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I hope it is. 
Elon Musk, rather subtle, and slamming advertisers for abandoning X after he endorsed an anti-Semitic post on the platform. If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But go f*** yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Kind of seems like he wanted more of a reaction, so he tried it again with the audience there. It all happened last night during that live audience interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times Deal Book Summit. Now, Musk did also apologize in that interview for endorsing the anti-Semitic post, calling it the worst and dumbest social media post he's ever done. Joining us now, CNN contributor and host of the On and Pivot podcast, Kara Swisher. Good to have you with us this morning. Um, I guess he got the chuckle on the second that he was looking for uh, in that statement. Um, it's fascinating to me, though, as we watch this, right? And he's there on the stage, and he seems to really be enjoying the moment. Um, we have this mm-hmm. estimate that from the New York Times, I believe, that Twitter's going to lose $75 million in revenue. And he's sort of saying, fine, we don't need you. But the business right. itself needs yeah. them. And they're going away because of what yes. he did. Yes, yes. He's, let me just underscore for, uh, for the audience. He's 52 years old. This is a 52-year-old man who feels the need to say dirty words to, to make people shocked. It's just, it's bizarre. And, um, and he caused the problem and he wants to blame them for exercising their first amendment right not to advertise on, on his terrible platform. I think it's really bizarre. It was a bizarre performance. It was a meltdown. He seemed, uh, he attacked Bob Iger, who was in the audience, the head of Disney, uh, for just not wanting to advertise on him. I, it was it was so strange, and he's done it before. He's attacked advertisers when he first bought the company because he was frustrated. But again, let me underscore, he's 52 years old mm-hmm. and the richest person in the world. And I'm sorry, he's she, that, that's not how adults behave. It's how adult toddlers behave. And also certainly not how public company heads of public companies behave. Um, one of the drivers yeah. of how that public company is supposed to survive is the advertising. The person responsible for the advertising came over with much fanfare, yeah. Linda Yaccarino. And I think I'm struck, you know, she put out a tweet last night saying, uh, trying, I don't know what it was trying to do to be completely candid with you, uh, <laughs> saying, here's my right perspective ahead. when it comes to advertising. Yeah, X is standing at a unique and amazing intersection of free speech on Main Street, and the X community is powerful, and it's yeah. here to welcome you to our partners who believe in our meaningful work. Um, thank you. It's like a tweeting through it, but not really sure with what capacity. Uh, uh, <laughs> what? I, she's, I, you know, did you watch Succession? Yeah. Tom, the pain sponge? That's what she is. She's the pain sponge for this behavior. Uh, you know, this is an experienced ad exec. She knows exactly what happened here. And for some reason, she's decided to enable him. And that's the real problem here. There's a lot of people, besides his just ridiculous behavior and childish behavior, uh, she's also enabling him and making excuses and trying to wrap it in the cloak of the First Amendment. In fact, you don't have to advertise where you don't want to. I think that's pretty much the basics of advertising. People pick and choose, and they've picked, and instead he wants to blame them for his own um, behavior. I, I, it's It was such a bizarre, it's not bizarre, he's done it before. He just right. keeps doing it and keeps doubling down. And so, you know, at one point, um, you know, when some, as Maya Angelou said, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. Absolutely. I mean, it really is in the grand scheme of things, right? Sort of on brand. I was also struck by Carrie. I want to get your take on yeah. this. Um, Israel's president was also interviewed at Dealbook, and he was asked specifically about yeah. the visit that Elon Musk made. He was also asked. He said he appreciated it, but he was asked whether he thought Elon Musk would actually be fighting anti-Semitism on X, and he didn't really give an answer, which to me told us everything we he? needed to know. 
Right. How could he? Uh, it's 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 become, you know, he's allowed all kinds of uh, he got rid of content moderation. He said everyone should be able to say whatever. That trip was a PR stunt. And it was uh, it was a lot of people in Israel thought it was shameful for the government to do that. But they need help, too, I guess. You know what's happening there, especially Netanyahu. Netanyahu's come to his aid before mm-hmm. uh, when he had another issue around anti-Semitism with the ADL. And so this just happens over and over again. And what's fascinating is the blame he wants. The richest man in the world wants to say advertisers are the cause of his problems. He's the cause of his problems. And the reason ads are down is because of how he behaves on the platform, not just promoting anti-Semitic stuff or allowing it to run rampant. Study after study shows this. Um, but he sues people or he cuts them off or he calls them names. Bob Iger. What what in the world? Um, it's it, it, you know, it's his fault that he's losing all this money and he's going to have to pay the price. And he also said that on stage. Yeah, um, it's not a public company. It's his company. He can afford to keep doing this. It's just a very expensive hobby to insult yeah. your advertiser. Yeah, Carrie, we got to go. But you make a great point. Keying on the, the Iger yeah. comment, which I don't think has gotten as much attention as it should. It was a very, like, one-off, what the heck? Yeah. Uh, Kara Swisher, we could yeah. talk to you for hours about this. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Happening now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank as the violence there escalates. And this, Yardan Roman God was separated from her husband and her three-year-old daughter as they tried to escape Hamas militants on October 7th. Yardan was taken hostage and just hours ago, she was freed. Her brother will join us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend their military pause for another day, and that is offering additional hope that more hostages will be released. Sixteen were freed yesterday, including 36-year-old Israeli Yarden Roman Gat, who was among them. She was abducted on October 7th, along with her husband and their three-year-old daughter. They were visiting her in-laws at a kibbutz near the Gaza border. Her sister told a local news source that after Hamas forced the three of them into a car, they saw an IDF tank as they neared the border, took their chances and jumped out. Yardan handed her daughter off to her husband because she knew he could run faster with her and ran the other way, directing the gunshots toward her. Her husband and her daughter were able to escape after hiding in the woods for hours. Yardan was captured, and now, after nearly two months apart, they have finally been reunited. Joining me now is Yardan's brother, Gilly Roman, who, um, if you are a viewer of this program, you have seen Gilly multiple times here talking about his sister, pleading for her release. Gilly, you're at the hospital there. Uh, Yarden is at the hospital. How are you in this moment? How is Yarden? Um, first of all, good morning, and it is a good morning. It's finally saying that uh, we had a few good mornings here in Israel with the release of uh, more and more hostages. As this night, it was uh, the turn of uh, my uh, sister, and she came back here safe and healthy. Uh, obviously, she's been through horrible 40, uh, 54 days, uh, but now she's with us and uh, reunited with uh, this immense uh, immense joy you can see on the, on the face of her daughter <laughs> and um, a lot of relief. You told us it was probably about a month ago. You talked about your niece, about her daughter, three-year-old Geffen, and how she was, you know, in many ways at that point, really keeping people going. Um, she is just this light. And you said a lot of that is because of who her mother is and who her mother has taught her to be, even at the young age of three. 
that look on her face is pure joy, Gilly. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, but yes, uh, that was pure joy. Uh, that, that was pure joy. Um, even when we spoke with um, we spoke with Yarden on the phone before we met her, uh, and we just told Gavin that's few minutes before um, she immediately just you know she was ready she was ready to meet uh, she was ready to meet her mother um, and I told Yarden we missed you so much uh, Yarden told me uh, miss, uh, miss, missing is like a, a small word it's not enough to describe what I felt so Geffen told her and I miss you the whole world and over than that oh. <laughs> So just like a school, like really understand, really, really she grasped it and she, she, she kept our hopes and she kept our optimism and we did the same for her and now it's been um, fulfilled. Mm-hmm. I think that many people also, when I was at the last time, asked how, how can we be so optimistic and here I think that we were right and I want to keep on this optimism because we have so much more uh, people to be uh, released and so much more lives to be saved even uh, Geffen's aunt, my, sis, my the sister-in-law of uh, Yarden, is still in captivity. She was not released today. Uh, we are waiting for her to be on the list. Every day we have this nightmare of uh, who is on the list, who is not on the list, with this sick reality show by Hamas. And we hope that everybody will come back and experience this. Yeah. Did, um, did Yarden know that her husband and her daughter were safe? Or was she in the dark this whole time so she were she was in the dark most of the time uh she found out um uh late in her uh captivity uh by a random radio um uh radio uh, program uh that she briefly had the chance to hear uh on the side um um, a family members of ours, and uh, she concluded that uh, her her daughter and her husband are are alive. Uh, but she also uh, concluded that her mother-in-law was killed. Oh my so she she got few seconds few seconds of of, uh, of a split radio program. She got all this information, but most of the time she was uh, in the dark. Just imagine imagine how hard was it for her. Um, You said her sister-in-law is still being held. Were they held together? No, unfortunately, no. Uh, We know that uh, her sister-in-law, Carmel, was held with other hostages that have been released earlier this week. Um, And we know that she's healthy and waiting for her release as well. Uh, But she was not held with Yarden, and they did not meet each other, unfortunately. Gilly, we so appreciate you taking the time to join us uh, and to share what that reunion has been like. And we'll continue to follow your story. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll all have to be strong and resilient to wait until all of them will be back. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. This is CNN Breaking News. And that breaking news is we are going to take you straight to Capitol Hill and the press conference from George Santos. Round three of expulsion of Congressman George Santos from NY3. Um, I, I think 
we can all look back and say, uh, this is not how at least I thought this year would go. I don't think this is how most of people in the media would think uh, this year would go. And uh, it's just uh, an unfortunate circumstance that I have to sit here and watch American people waste uh, Congress waste the American people's time over and over again on something that is the power of the people, not the power of Congress, which is to remove and elect, to elect and remove members of Congress. Obviously, uh, some want to cling to some circumstances and to allegations, but there's been a long-standing precedent in the House that every single member that's ever been expelled, and they are trying to join me to the group of three Confederates and two people convicted in a court of law. So if I am to get expelled tomorrow, I will be number six in the history, the first Republican and the only one without a conviction or without being part of a uh, or without having committed treason. So that's that's kind of where we stand today on, on that sense. But let me go down a few things here that to give you a sense of Congress today and what it represents for the American people. It represents chaos. Chaos because we have a house that doesn't work for the people. We have a house where we have members with severe allegations against them having the gall and the, and the, the courage to call the speaker a joke. I read that today in Political. It was on the cover of Political where, you know, we're, we're reading about members of Congress trying to smear one of the most honorable members of our conference in the Republican Party. So that's just where we've stooped down to. People with rap sheets who think and feel emboldened enough to go call out other people for their policy. Secondly, it's amazing to me that this House continues to want to push me out. Meanwhile, we have Secretary Mayorkas, who's committed absolute dereliction of his duty, has put all Americans in danger. If you saw last night, the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting, which is something that for years has been one of the most beautiful celebrations in New York City, most peaceful, crowded, yes. But yesterday we had a band of vandals who thought it was appropriate to fight the NYPD. This is what took place just yesterday. And that's on Secretary Mayorkas, because a lot of these people, they're not here because they love this country. They're not here because they want the best for this country. Why are they here? It's starting from inside. And that's what you get when you have open borders and an administration that is oblivious to the real issue that's taking place. And then lastly, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about consistency. We have a member of Congress that earlier this year took a plea deal to obstructing a congressional hearing. That's not the plea deal he took, right? I'm kidding. He took a plea deal for pulling a fire alarm, a fire alarm which obstructed and delayed an official hearing and proceeding on the House floor. Now, had that been any other person, had it been one of the members of the media, had it been a Republican member of Congress, we all know that that person would have been filed, would have been charged with obstructing a congressional hearing, just like the somewhat 140 people sitting in prison right now because of January 6th. But Jamal Bowman gets a pass. That's why today at noon, I'm going to be introducing a privileged motion for expulsion of convicted and uh, guilty pleaded uh, Congressman Jamal Bowman. And uh, I stand there. I think that that's consistency. Let's hold our own accountable, but let's make sure that we do it with the president of the House. Now, if the House wants to start different precedent and expel me, that is going to be the undoing of a lot of members of this body because this will haunt them in the future where mere allegations are sufficient 
to have members removed from office when duly elected by their people in their respective states and districts. So bearing that in mind, I'm going to make this a very brief and uh, uh, a comment on the on the process here that's taken place with the Ethics Committee. By admission of the chairman himself, he said that the process was not full throttled and not complete because it would require many more months in order for the committee to offer any kind of uh, punishment. So instead, they decided to stop short of completing the process, going ahead and putting out a slanderous report, unprecedented. Nobody here's ever seen ethics reports of any other members who's been under investigation. But yet again, changing precedent for me, it seems that it's all fair game. So there we go. They go ahead and release this, this report littered littered in hyperbole, littered in opinion that would have no decent cop would bring this to a prosecutor or a DA and say, here's our report, go ahead and charge him, right? So this is what the ethics committee put out. God bless them and what they think they're doing and what their work is. You know, I believe they do good work when it's relevant, but this, this ain't it. So with that, I'm going to make this a very brief opportunity for a couple of questions in an orderly fashion without screaming at me, we'll go by hands. Mr. Santos. Mr. Go ahead. Why didn't you participate in the ethics committee's investigation? They said that you were not cooperating with them. If you think this is such a shame, why didn't you participate? I cooperated. I provided them every single document, uh, for the most part, that they went off of came from my counsel. Mr. Santos, Mr. Santos. Go ahead. Because if I leave, they win. If I leave, the bullies take place. This is bullying. The, rep, the chair of the committee putting out a motion to expel, just introducing it and not calling its privilege, was designed to force me to resign. But he didn't even have the fortitude to go ahead and call the privilege. He had someone else do it, someone who's actually just recently done one on me, which is Congressman Esposito. So the reality of it is it's all theater. It's theater for the cameras, it's theater for the microphones, it's theater for the American people at the expense of the American people because no real work's getting done. Congressman Santos, Santos. Congressman Santos. Go ahead. You talked about a lot of the alleged transgressions of other members of Congress. Have you made any formal complaints to the OCU or the I will be filing. I will be filing a slew of complaints uh, in the coming hours uh, of today and tomorrow to make sure that we keep the the playing field even. Because at this point, I have been nothing but generous and kind with my time. I have not raised my voice or a single finger against a single other member of this body. But now I guess it's fair game to continue to do that. Go ahead. I told you, I told you the other day, I am not unpacking the, the report. It is counterproductive for me to do so at this time. There will be a time that I will unpack it entirely and go line by line. Uh, I will go line by line when the time is, is proper. Go ahead. He resigned. He resigned. That's the reality is he's resigned. He resigned. 
Right. Congressman Santos. Congressman Santos, you, you mentioned many members of Congress have rap sheets. Are you going to be naming them? Why, why not? Why not? Put, why not put them put their names out on the on the floor? Well, why do I have to do your job for you? I mean, do you guys, you guys like digging up stuff on me? Why don't you go dig up on other members? There's so many. It's out in the open. Go ahead. Um, you talked a lot about during this process you're being bullied. Why are you feeling that you're being bullied? Why do you think you're being bullied? Why do you think I mean, it's the third time. And each time for different reasons, and they just keep going. I don't know. Ask them. I don't care. Go ahead. I know you've asked this before, but are the accusations against you true? I've said this many times. I'm fighting to defend myself and to dispel each and every accusation as soon as I have the opportunity. Go ahead. What do you say to your constituents who feel like they, you're not serving them while all this is going on? You see, that's not true. I've, I have two district offices in New York, and they, they're constantly busy with folks coming in for various issues, obviously pertaining from the simple as a, a need for an expedited passport to more complex immigration issues. There is one thing that sometimes deters people from walking in is when we have crowds of media outside the office. And I'm not blaming the media. I'm just saying that that does interfere with constituent services. People don't want to be on camera. They don't want, they don't want that ex exposure of them. So, but the service is there. I nominated 29, 29 applicants to the uh, service academies, and I've already had four gotten accepted. And I did that earlier than most people in this building. So I'm pretty proud of the fact that I have a staff that's a veteran staff in, in leadership in, in my D.C. office and in my district office, and the operation runs pretty smooth. I mean, look, we haven't had real complaints other than from organized uh, uh, anti-George Santos groups. Obviously, I didn't win my seat unanimously with every single vote in the district. I had people who opposed me, but uh, we do the best, and we're open to everybody, and I look, the thing I like to do the most is serve the people and talk to them. Do you expect the expulsion vote to pass? In regards to the allegations that you bring up in the ethics report, though, these are items that you could easily say did not happen, that you have not participated in any of these things. So why are you waiting until after this vote comes down to actually address these major uh, issues? I didn't say I didn't say I was waiting for the vote to come down. Well, coming down I, ha I understand. I'm doing this in a different schedule. It's not the schedule of the House or the expulsion. You already well, you got a question. Months. Do you, the go ahead, sir. Do you expect the expulsion vote to pass? And if so, why do you think this time? We are going to keep monitoring what we have been watching. That is, of course, Congressman George Santos. He uh, is facing for the third time a vote of expulsion on the House floor, likely tomorrow. Certainly momentum heading in the direction of his expulsion within his own party, along with Democrats. He's standing out in front of the House, not on the Capitol steps like he planned, because it turns out members aren't allowed to have press conferences on the Capitol steps. I'm going to bring in the panel for, in a moment, but just to kind of give a summary of what we've heard up to this point. Uh, he accused multiple members of having rap sheets, something he read uh, in the publication Political, which we aren't totally sure exists at this point. Uh, Protesters in New York City last night in support of the Palestinian cause. He referred to them all as illegal immigrants. Uh, he compared Jamal Bowman, the congressman who pled guilty to pulling a fire alarm, paying a $1,000 fine, writing an apology letter, to the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol and those individuals as well who are in jail. He said he cooperated for the most part with the ethics inquiry. He did not. He did not uh, sit down for an interview. He also said that the ethics report, which is very damning and contained a lot of receipts, uh, was so thin that it wouldn't have brought charges against him if he were a cop. Of course, he has been indicted. Uh, so that's where things stand right now. Oh, also two action items. He's going to file a slew of ethics complaints with the Office of Congressional Ethics and the aforementioned Jamal Bowman. 
He will try to submit a privilege, to file a privilege resolution to expel him as well. He also did promise to go line by line when the time is proper right. to go through that Essex complaint and uh, the ethics findings, rather. And I did think it was notable how he really, again, this was related to something he read in Political, which yeah. is, we're not familiar with the publication. Um, but it was a very clear message, I would say, to Speaker Johnson as well, saying, hey, I'm on your team. I'm on your team. Yeah. Uh, that was tough to miss off the top. For good reason, given Johnson saying he was concerned about precedent, not getting fully behind at all uh, the expulsion, said, we'll get to the panel. This is all theater. He was referring to the expulsion vote. Probably make the argument for what you're watching on one side of your screen right now as well. Joining us now, CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox, CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin, CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton, and co-host of the Higher Learning podcast Van Lathan, also CNN anchor of Early Start and chief national affairs analyst Casey Hunt. Um, Lauren, I, I want to start with you. You're there. This is serious. It doesn't have a lot of precedent. And I, and I know we can joke around and we're still trying to figure out what political is as a publication. Um, but explain what this means for the chamber. Yeah, I mean, clearly he was trying to deflect this morning. All eyes are were, were on whether or not he was going to make a decision this morning to resign. Clearly, that was not his intention for holding this press conference. He wants to distract. He wants to talk about other members. He wants to talk about other people's transgressions without even naming who he is talking about. It's also clear that he's not stepping aside. It's also clear that Momentum is building for the votes to expel him. Now, we expect that that will come up tomorrow on the House floor. That's when the vote will occur. It's going to be close. It's not clear the votes are there to expel him. Obviously, Speaker Johnson's comments yesterday that he had concerns about setting the wrong precedent that's weighing on members' minds. They realize that that is something that they could potentially be wading into. And you saw Santos really seizing on that this morning. So, Phil, obviously, he's still going. He's still answering reporter questions. But I asked him off the top, why didn't you participate with the Ethics Committee? If you are so concerned that this was a sham report, why didn't you sit down for an interview? And he said he well, did participate. Uh, but I would just note that the committee report is very clear. They did not get the cooperation they were looking for from George Santos. Yeah, I think his exact words to you in response, Lauren, were that he cooperated, quote, for the most part. <laughs> um, what's interesting as we look at this, you know, you, Lauren just brought up the reservations that we heard about from Speaker Johnson. There is also the very real calculation of the majority and what would happen to that majority. Ryan Sinke told you earlier this morning it should be the same decision, whether that majority is four or 40 people. Casey, when we look at where things stand and the messaging that is being put out by Speaker Johnson, by what we're seeing this morning, where does the momentum sit this morning? It seems like, it, you know, and, and Lauren's been reporting this, it seems like it's against Santos right now that the momentum is toward, uh, it's a wave that is going to, you know, pull him out uh, of Congress. I think that's part of why you saw, I mean, he, this was a performance that he gave this morning, right? I mean, it was a pugnacious performance in, you know, the era of uh, Trumpian politics. He's trying to turn himself uh, into a martyr and likely earn himself, uh, you know, a, a paycheck after uh, he is forced out of Congress. Um, you know, I think it's pretty transparent kind of what's going on there. Now, that said, he is not wrong that it is a remarkable precedent to set to expel someone who has not already been convicted or, you know, most of the expulsions from Congress took place in the context of the Civil War. They were people who fought, literally fought for 
um, you know, the enemy of the United States of America in its in its time of, of, of most difficulty. Um, so that's that's true. And that's what you heard from from the House Speaker as well. Um, but I do think that one of the key dynamics here is that it does show you the diminished power of leaders in Congress to do stuff about this, because a big part of the reason there haven't been more expulsions for situations like this is because when we have had this, the person has been informed in no uncertain terms by their leaders that the right thing to do is to exit stage left immediately. And typically they have said, okay, fine, we'll do that. They, 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 the, the leaders have had the power to get members of Congress uh, to do that, and it has not resorted to you know, what you are seeing on your screen right now, um, which are the people that, that had to be forcibly ejected because they could not be convinced. I mean, I think it's just more evidence, Erica, that, you know, we're living in kind of a shame-free era in our politics. Yeah, yeah Casey, that's a, that's a really good point uh, about usually people just resign. Uh, that has clearly not been the case. Van, I was watching you, uh, not in a creepy way, <laughs> during, during that press conference. Glad we clarified, <laughs> just, Phil. As I was saying, I was like, well, that sounds weird. Um, and you kind of had a look of like the Always Sunny in Philadelphia string board meme <laughs> of like trying to put together all of the different pieces. Yeah. Uh, what was that? I was thinking about how much I'm going to miss him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a mascot for America's political unseriousness. And we very much need that because we like we act like they're actually people who are navigating through um, uh, the country trying to make it better for us. But really, we're like a little, a bunch of little George Santos. It's people that are propping themselves up, not really keeping their eye on the ball and like benefiting themselves. And so I saw him there with a full face of makeup on, doing this entire thing, thinking, I'm going to miss this guy, man. This guy was, uh, he was the perfect sort of underpinning of how absurd things have gotten. And without that, people get to feign seriousness and not actually do anything and not actually affect anything, but really be him inside. So I was thinking, man, even though he's going to go on to become the greatest reality television star of our time, I was thinking, God, I'm going to miss this guy. Yeah, I was thinking, you're not going to have to miss him for very long. I, don't, I am not clear that regardless of what happens here, that he is actually going away in that context. I do think you bring up a great point, though, too, about what we are seeing now in terms of lawmakers, right? There, we are in this shame-free world, as Casey pointed out, and there have been significant questions for a number of years now, perhaps best encapsulated here, of you know, what are lawmakers actually doing? Right. And but I, I do mean that on a, on a serious front and, and looking at what is happening this morning, you have to wonder, too, what voters are saying about. That. Well, certainly. And I think that we kind of live in a world where a lot of folks are running for Congress to become political influencers down the road. More and more members have podcasts rather than doing constituent services. Matt Gates, I you know, what is it that he actually does? They're unclear. But here's what I'll say. I'm hearing the same thing as Casey. I do think that this expulsion resolution uh, ends up passing and needs a two thirds majority vote. We know all Democrats are going to be for it. The full New York delegation is calling for this. But it sets up an interesting dynamic in Congress where, of course, Speaker Johnson's going to lose one more vote that he has in a very slim majority. But I would argue it's better for the Republican Party that George Santos be out for the obvious reasons, but also that one of the most vulnerable Republican lawmakers is Mike Lawler, who is a New York member, top target in the DCCC. It's harder for him in a reelection to say, oh, yeah, this guy's my colleague. So it's in the best interest of the institution that he be gone and to hold on to serious member seats. Yeah, but the, yeah go ahead. No, I would just say you mentioned Mike Lawler. The vast majority of New Yorkers wanted George Santos to resign. He could have easily resigned. That's what the vast majority of New Yorkers wanted. Eighty three percent of Long Islanders is home place wanted him to resign. The vast majority of Republicans want him to resign. More 
New Yorkers want him to resign than wanted Richard Nixon to resign back in 1974. So the fact is, you get this guy coming up here with this populist message, the people are against him, not with him. This is not a hard equation to solve, folks. Yeah, but Van's going to miss it. Can I mention, though, I do think one thing that some of the Freedom Caucus folks are arguing is Bob Menendez, who's been indicted by the Department of Justice on corruption charges and aiding a foreign government, is still a sitting U.S. senator. So there is this question over precedent. Why is this, you know, Botox charges and Farragama loafers, for some reason, more serious than that? I think it's a valid point. I I mean, my... I, I think it's probably the OnlyFans. Um, it's probably... <laughs> it really the, puts the, you over the edge. I know that's what you were going to bring up, Matt. I just... Not, okay, you don't feel like that easy. makes him a little bit more relatable? No, I think to your point, why he kind of encapsulates where like, he's like a caricature that's probably far more real than any of us would like to admit about the current state, not just of Washington, but in general. Yeah, I think there's a disconnect, right? Like, people, people are watching this and they want to be inspired. They want to believe that there's a way out to the America that we're in right now. And you see this and you see someone who so clearly puts himself ahead of the interests of the country. Like he's not even pretending (laughs) to care about anything other than himself. Literally took the money that he raised and spent it on OnlyFans and Botox. That is breathtaking. But I don't think we can let go of it. I think everyone wants to see him gone. I want to see him stay around for a little while. What else could he do? Well, and I assume you, you appreciate the transparency, Absolutely. right? Just do it. Like, right. don't try and do things and smoke. You can't hide that <laughs> um, Guys, we appreciate it. Uh, Lauren Fox, Harry Anton, Elizabeth Farrah Griffin, Van Lath, and Casey. Always a pleasure. Thank you. New overnight, at least three people are dead, seven others wounded in Jerusalem. This is after police say Palestinian gunmen opened fire at a bus stop. We have a live report for you just ahead. And tributes are pouring in from across the world after the death of former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, including from Vladimir Putin. We're going to tell you what he said. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, at least three people were killed, seven injured after police say Palestinian gunmen opened fire on a bus stop in the eastern part of Jerusalem near the West Bank. Uh, In this video seen here, you can see someone being taken away on a stretcher. This happened just hours after the IDF killed four people, including two children in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. And we do want to warn you, what we are about to show you is graphic video of one of those children. You can see the child's body on the street being pulled to the side as someone waves for help. CNN senior international correspondent Ivan Watson joins us now from Beirut. Um, So, Ivan, this ongoing violence there, this is obviously uh, playing into the larger dynamics as we watch this now pause that was extended at the last minute last night. Walk us through that. Sure. I mean, while Gaza has been relatively quiet for the last week throughout this uh, uh, truce that has been extended kind of day after day, the West Bank and Jerusalem uh, are bleeding uh, with uh, Hamas claiming responsibility for an attack on a bus station in Jerusalem uh, that left at least three people dead, seven wounded. The Israeli police say that they killed the attackers who they say arrived in a car from East Jerusalem. Hamas has said uh, again that this was part of their military wing that carried this out and that it was a 
direct response as they put it to the unprecedented crimes committed by, as they put it, the occupying forces, including the brutal uh, massacres in the Gaza Strip, and it goes on. Meanwhile, as you also mentioned, uh, the Israeli military has been conducting operations throughout the course of the past month and prior to that initial uh, Hamas attack of October 7th in the West Bank. Uh, so just this morning, uh, there was a 21-year-old Palestinian man who was killed in some kind of confrontation around one of the Israeli releases of uh, Palestinian prisoners, that it's part of the prisoner exchanges between the hostages that have been released by Hamas in Gaza. Uh, and the uh, Palestinian Ministry of Health, they say that this year alone in the West Bank, there have been at least 455 Palestinians killed and 247 killed uh, since the initial uh, Hamas uh, massacre of October 7th. So it just gives you a sense of the, the loss of life and how deadly and volatile the situation is right now, even though the bombs have stopped falling for about six days now in Gaza. And I will add one other factor. Uh, Qatar and Egypt mediators in this truce, they're pushing for two more days of truce uh, if that falls through, we could have more violence here between Israel and Lebanon, and the UN peacekeepers here have recorded uh, for two straight days now shooting across the border, they say, from Israeli forces here into Lebanon. Back to you. Ivan Watson, Force in Beirut. Thank you. Uh, well, while you were sleeping overnight, Israel and Hamas did announce a last-minute extension uh, to that deal to pause the fighting for one additional day. It really was, though, down to the wire. And we have new pictures this morning of one of the hostages just released by Hamas. You see it there, the family of 40-year-old Maran Stella Yanai gave CNN these photos of her reuniting with loved ones. Yanai was one of 10 Israelis Hamas set free on Wednesday. She was attending the Supernova Music Festival when she was taken hostage on October 7th. Her brother-in-law will join us tomorrow morning. This morning, the fragile pause between Israel and Hamas will continue for at least another day. Israel says it does have a new list of women and children who are expected to be released. But that comes after Israel and Hamas really were up until the last minutes of this deal to extend the pause. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke from Israel just a short time ago. We have been focused relentlessly on trying to secure the release of hostages. This process is producing results, it's important, and we hope that it can continue. Joining us now is CNN political and foreign policy analyst, Barack Ravid. He's also political and foreign policy reporter at Axios. Barack, we'll get to kind of the really intense dynamics last night in a moment, but to start with uh, what's been going on this morning, the Secretary of State meeting with the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, meeting with other senior officials as well. What do we know about what was conveyed in that meeting from the U.S. side? Good morning. I think one of the most important points that uh, Blinken uh, wanted to make in, the, in his meetings uh, in Israel uh, didn't necessarily have to do with the hostage deal. Obviously, that came up too, and the U.S. wants to continue the pause. But there was a more important issue, and this is what happens when the pause ends, because it will end. It's just a matter of days. And Blinken told Netanyahu and the members of his war cabinet that before any resumption of military uh, operations, especially in southern Gaza, where two million Palestinians are concentrated, the U.S. wants to see what's the Israeli military plan, meaning how do you go into southern Gaza without creating huge harm to civilians?
And this is, I mean, this is some of the reporting that you had yesterday as well, that Biden was making that very clear, that the operations in southern Gaza could not look like what had happened in the north. And you also made the point, too, of so many civilians who had been told they had to leave the north and are now in the south. How is that message being received? Uh, I think the Israelis um, agree that uh, they need to take this into consideration. Um, and uh, I think they're gonna, we're going to see in the coming days discussions between Israel and the U.S. on a military-to-military level, the same way we saw before the operation in the north, when U.S. generals came to Israel to sit on the operational plans with their Israeli uh, counterparts. But I think that when the U.S. now is telling Israel, you need to take into consideration this the humanitarian situation in southern Gaza and the number of Palestinians in southern Gaza, this is more than a hint that it's not about how you do the operation, it's maybe about whether you do the operation. Barack, given some of the optimism we'd heard earlier in the day yesterday, I was stunned that it was literally a matter of minutes uh, before the deadline they reached that deal last night. What does that say for the prospects, based on what you know that happened last night, about another extension? Yeah, I think uh, what it means is that uh, we're going to have another drama uh, today, tonight, and maybe uh, we got into a point where, uh, you know, there's not enough goodwill and not enough uh, mediation that can take this pause another day uh, further. It was really, uh, you know, minutes away from resumption of hostilities, both sides. The IDF and Hamas literally issued statements saying that their forces are on high alert, preparing for resumption of hostilities, when in, I think, 15 minutes before the uh, ceasefire ended, uh, Hamas sent a new list of hostages that was, according to the criteria, agreed upon by both parties and basically bought another day of pause. But I think that we are really on the last, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, drops of fuel with this uh, uh, ceasefire. Barack Ravid, always appreciate you joining us and the reporting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Henry Kissinger is dead at the age of 100. The polarizing former Secretary of State reshaped American diplomacy and the world. We're going to speak to someone who talked to him recently. David Axelrod, next. Secretary Kissinger really set the standard for everyone who followed uh, in um, in this job. Even fewer people did more to shape history than Henry Kissinger. One of the most prolific and dominating forces in American foreign policy has died. Former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger passed away at the age of 100. Kissinger's complicated legacy was largely formed under his years with President Richard Nixon in the 1970s. Tributes have been pouring in from leaders across the globe, ranging from former President George W. Bush French President Emmanuel Macron, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, China's foreign ministry, even Russian President Vladimir Putin. It wasn't just the 70s, it was every year after that. Joining us now, CNN senior political commentator David Axelrod. David, you recently sat down, uh, or you spoke with Kissinger last year, I believe, correct? Uh, Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. To that point, we've been talking about this all, all day. He was in China in July to meet with the Chinese president at the lowest moment of U.S. relations with China in a very long time. Uh, He was meeting with members of Congress in September. What was he like? Yeah. It was incredible, Phil, because the man was 99 years old. Uh, By the way, he was in China celebrating his 100th birthday, 
with uh, with Chinese leaders who he had known for decades and decades. Um, he he was ninety nine years old and he was completely cogent. Uh, and uh, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, this man has been on the scene for eight decades. He's been influencing American foreign policy. And of course, I remember as a young man watching Kissinger in the role as both uh, Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. And Phil, you'll appreciate this as a former White House correspondent. He was the only guy who combined the roles. Uh, when he was National Security Advisor for Nixon, he basically subjugated the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense to him. And then when he became Secretary of State, he didn't want anybody to do that to him. So he maintained both roles at the same time. And, uh, you know, Tony Blinken said, uh, talked about uh, no one has done more to shape history. That was what Kissinger uh, wanted to do. Kissinger saw his role as a man who moved history. He wanted to be remembered that way. And he'll be remembered that way for better and worse. Um, in terms of that, for better and worse, there there has been plenty of controversy and criticism over the years. I was struck by some of what was written overnight in terms of the obituaries as well yeah. and how he's being remembered. Did any of that strike you, that, that some of them went straight to the controversy, went straight to the questions? Well, it's hard to ignore, Erica. If you, you, know, if you live through that era, um, he really was controversial because he believed that he was a realist, uh, he, he, he led a school of thought that said you, you need to subjugate everything to uh, the country's strategic interests. And often that meant human rights. Uh, and uh, sometimes it meant circumventing uh, uh, the you know, rules and laws. Uh, the bombing of Cambodia secretly, uh, the bombing of Cambodia in uh, the Vietnam War, which is something that he and Nixon initiated early in the Nixon administration, done without uh, the knowledge of Congress uh, or permission of Congress. Cambodia was not a party to the war at that point, uh, but he, it was, he felt it was in the strategic interest of the U.S. to do that uh, because he, he felt supply lines were coming through uh, or uh, uh, troops were massed in Cambodia, North Vietnamese troops. And, you know, he was involved in, uh, uh, under his watch, covert, actions to topple leaders who he felt were leaning in the communist direction. Um, he, uh, you know, uh, uh, turned the other way to abuses of human rights when they were being, uh, when they were being propagated by uh, allies in, in the fight against the Soviets. So, you know, he, he had a philosophy and he brutally enforced it. He also was a very secretive uh, person. And uh, mm -hmm. when, uh, when the Cambodian raids were revealed, he uh, authorized with J. Edgar Hoover, uh, you know, investigations of White House staff, including his right. own, to see where the leaks came from. So, you know, these things linger. Uh, tens of thousands of people died uh, in incursions that he sort of turned right. his back to because he had larger goals. Yeah, and, and you can't leave it out. People aren't leaving it out. Um, the conversation you had with him was fascinating. David Sanger's obit in the New York Times today is a must-read for everyone. David Axelrod, thank you, as always. Incredible, yeah. Yeah, good to see you guys. The CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase issuing a stark warning to Wall Street. A recession is not off the table. 
We'll tell you why he's concerned this morning. And Sunday was the busiest day ever for U.S. airports. How are airlines prepping for another rush of travelers next month? We're going to speak with CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby. That's next. Holiday travel is expected to continue breaking records this season. Sunday actually was the busiest day ever for U.S. airports. The TSA says it screened more than 2.9 million passengers as folks headed home after the Thanksgiving holiday. That's actually up over, that's up 10% over last year's numbers. And Airlines for America, which represents the country's largest carriers, says flights were completed 99.9% of the time, 83% of those arriving on time. Those are statistics uh, that are probably music to the ears of our next guest, the CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby. Scott, it's good to have you with us this morning. Um, look, I know United Thank had you. a had a very busy, very successful uh, Thanksgiving holiday yeah. travel period. I'm curious, after the holiday meltdown in 2022, um, that following January, you told CNN the system was, in your words, stressed to the max. I know you've been critical of FAA yeah. staffing. Do you think what we saw over yeah. Thanksgiving, and specifically for United, was that a lucky break, or is the worst behind us? Well, thanks for having me. And actually, this really was uh, the, the successful holiday, which was great for United. It was also great for the whole industry, as you said. Uh, really the best in probably 20 years that we've had. And I think the key to it was the changes that the FAA has made, particularly for the New York, New Jersey airspace. Uh, for years, there were more flights scheduled than the theoretical capacity of those airports could handle. And so even in blue sky days, you had flights either had to be delayed by multiple hours or canceled. Uh, and the FAA has made changes in the New York, New Jersey airspace. And that's the biggest travel market in the world. So if it runs poorly, it spills over to the rest of the system. And if it runs well, the rest of the system can run well. And so I think the biggest credit, the biggest change for this Thanksgiving holiday uh, was the changes that the FAA has made to, to New York, New Jersey airspace. That's good to hear, especially someone who flies out of that airspace a lot, yeah. selfishly. Um, <laughs> there's some new details that came in last night. I know the NTSB continues to investigate runway incursions. There was a particularly close call on a runway in Austin earlier this year. Do you think there is enough yeah. urgency around this issue? Is there anything that the airlines th themselves can do? Or are you really at the mercy of the FAA here? No, the great thing about aviation is it is an order of magnitude safer than the second safest industry in the world. Our safety standards are unbelievably high uh, at, at airlines, but also at the FAA. And we're all working together uh, on this. When you kind of made out of COVID uh, and you got a lot of more new people, a lot of people retired. Uh, that has been some of the challenge that we at airlines have, have attempted to address, but also doing it in concert um, and hand in hand uh, with the FAA. And we're all working on things. You know, at United, we've done things like we've we've significantly changed the training, increased the amount of training that pilots have, recurrent training, but also uh, new hire training, upgrade training, uh, and a lot of things like that to to keep this as by far the safest industry anywhere in the world, and the U.S. system safer than the rest of the world as well. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a couple of quick money questions. Uh, number one, FAA reauthorization actually runs out at the end of December. How concerned are you about January 1? Well, hopefully we're going to get it done. I feel encouraged. Uh, in fact, I'm on my way to D.C. Um, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, but I feel encouraged by what we're hearing in D.C. that uh, the FAA reauthorization is going to be done. It's critical that it gets done because while the holidays ran well, you know, there was reasonably good weather uh, over the holidays and the infrastructure, you need to invest in the infrastructure, the air traffic control system is 3,000 controllers short uh, of what it needs to be. And so there's a lot of work to do uh, to make this the best 
air traffic control mm -hmm. system in the world, and the FAA authorization bill will do that. I think it's going to get done. There's a couple of issues that have been hanging it up mm -hmm. uh, that I think there's going to be, you know, at least encouraged to hear that there's compromise on, uh, and we can get that over the finish line. So I, I think it'll be done by the end of the year, and we won't have anything to worry about on January, at least. Okay, Fingers from crossed. your lips to Congress's ears. And then from a consumer's <laughs> perspective, um, we saw this revenge spending coming out of the pandemic, right? And then there was a lot of talk about how expensive it had become to fly. Prices are cooling a little bit. And I think we can just show on the screen uh, the trend that we've seen for consumers. Is that trend going to continue? Well, first, what I would say is uh, I don't think it was revenge travel. I think this is the new normal. Uh, people appreciate experiences, and, and travel is one of those experiences. Uh, and so that has been strong. If you really, if you're looking at charts like that, I can't see the chart, but if you're looking at charts like this, air travel remains an incredible value. It's about 40% lower in real terms than it was 20 years ago. So prices have come down. Now, they artificially dipped really, really low uh, in COVID. So there was a bounce back from that. And so I think we're in the zone uh, of the new normal for pricing. All right. Scott Kirby, appreciate your time this morning. Good luck tomorrow in D.C. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.